So we read um, several verses here, as you noticed, and although there are at least two or three things in the verses that we read from verse 12 to verse 30 uh, that we could probably spend a lot of our time on, I want today rather to focus on verse 12. And as we see here in, in this 12th verse, we have another one of those uh, I am statements of Jesus. Maybe you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that in John's gospel, remember John's objective is that, um, that people would read these things, that they would come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they might have life through his name. That's John's goal. And we pointed out that um, throughout the gospel, one of the things that's, that is unique to John's gospel are these I am statements of Jesus, where he takes this formula um, and he says, I am, we saw already, I am the bread of life. And, and now the second one, I am the light of the world. But in doing that, he's taking uh, the name of God to himself. When he says, I am, he is identifying as the God of Israel. You remember perhaps when um, in Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord appeared to Moses in that burning bush and Moses says, basically Moses says, what is your name? God says, my name is I am. I am that I am. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is, again, he's identifying himself as as. Uh, the God of Israel. And so we're going to focus in on uh, this statement here today. Now, these words were spoken in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so we've been in uh, the seventh chapter and now here into the early part of the eighth chapter uh, everything that's been happening has been going on around this, this Feast of Tabernacles. And it was there on the last day, the great day of the feast. Maybe you remember, um, again, we looked at this a few weeks back. Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so here, it's the same setting. And Jesus said that, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, because there was a, um, there was a, something that was happening there in their midst that would, that would connect um, Jesus with the, the historical provision of God uh, with water for the people in the wilderness. So there was this processional that was taking place where the priest would go down and they would go to the pool of Siloam and they would fill up these basins with water and then they would come back up and they would pour the water out on the rock. And this was a reminder to the people of how God um, provided water for them in the wilderness, in the desert. He provided water out of a rock. 
And so this is all the visual. They're watching this. And then Jesus suddenly stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. So this is, this is a similar sort of a thing because also there on uh, the temple area at the time, there was a, a massive uh, candelabra. There was this giant candelabra that would be lit every night and it would light up the whole of the Temple Mount area. And that was also a reminder to the people of how God provided light for them in the darkness of the wilderness. And so we read back in, uh, in Exodus again, we read that when they're going through their journey, um, and we see this in Numbers as well, that God, um, he provided a covering for them during the day, a cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. The cloud by day protected them from the heat. The pillar of fire by night um, kept them warm because the temperatures can be really extreme there, but also provided light for them. So now Jesus, taking advantage of a kind of a teaching moment, um, he, they would see this, this candelabra, but he now says about himself, <coughs> excuse me, that he is the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, <coughs> but will have uh, the light of life. Now, something that I think is very interesting is what... Uh, Jesus says here, in that, he doesn't say what he might have been expected to say. They might have expected him to say, I am the light of Israel. But he doesn't. Even though he is, <coughs> but he's more than that. He says, I am the light of the world, the whole world, all people. I've, came, I've come to bring uh, illumination, not just to the people of Israel, but to all people. And this is really what the scriptures has, had taught. But the people, at the, especially at the time, and especially the leaders, they had completely lost sight of the fact that the Messiah was going to come to save the world. They had reduced the Messiah to coming and basically blessing them. Messiah would come, he's gonna bless us, the people of Israel, and we're gonna rule over the rest of the world. So it was a completely, uh, sort of a self-centered interpretation. But the scriptures had declared um, even though they were often ignored at the time, the scriptures had declared that the Messiah was coming for the whole world, that God loved the whole world, that God's intention was to uh, bring the world back to him. And so the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he said this, he said, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. This is God speaking to the Messiah. The too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. 
So you see the Jewish people, and specifically the leaders, they saw the Messiah as, yeah, he's coming for Jacob, he's coming for Israel. But the Lord says, yes, that's true, but I'm also giving you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when Jesus was born, some of you will know this because you've read it in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus is born, his parents in Jerusalem, they take him to be dedicated at the temple. And when they come to present him at the temple, there's a, a very old man named Simeon there. And Simeon, it's been revealed by the Lord to Simeon that he's not going to die until he sees the Messiah. So Joseph and Mary, they come and they're bringing the baby Jesus in. And Simeon sees them and he identifies this child is the Messiah. And he takes him up in his arms and he blesses the Lord. And this is what he says. Listen, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So yes, he's coming for Israel, but he is coming for all people, all nations. So uh, the prophets had declared that. So when Jesus stands on this day, this day, the, the feast now uh, has officially ended. But now on the day following, Jesus is there in that same area, in the temple area. He's teaching and he says these words, I am the light of the world. Now, when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, there's something implied in that. And what is implied in that is that the world is dark. That the world is dark. And the darkness, of course, that's being referred to here is not, um, we're not talking a physical darkness, but we're talking about spiritual darkness, moral darkness. The world is enshrouded in darkness. And that's always been the case. Always been the case. Now, we haven't always recognized that that's the case because uh, of a number of things, uh, mainly because of uh, the influences of the spirit and the gospel throughout history in different places. But, I mean, let's, let's just understand that the world has always been a dark place. The world today is a dark place. And I think it's getting darker all the time. Think of darkness as spiritual darkness, moral darkness. Think of it as confusion, spiritually and morally. Think of it as oppressive and harmful. That is the reality that we live in. And Jesus says that he is the light of the world. He's the one who stepped into that darkness. We live in the midst of darkness, but so few recognize it. You know how, you know how your light, uh, your light, how your eyes will adjust um, to darkness? I mean, there, there's certain levels of darkness that there is no adjusting. It's just pitch black, and 
however your eyes adjust, it doesn't change anything. But we've, we've all probably had the experience of, you know, being in a dark room or something, and then, you know, given enough time, your eyes sort of adjust a little bit, and you start to be able to see, see a little bit. Well, here we are, we're living in this darkness, but we don't realize so often that we're living in the darkness. Think about the fact that the majority of people neither see nor understand the value of their own soul. What, what is that? that? That's darkness. There's, their, their minds are darkened in relation to that. The, the majority of people have no concept of the reality and love of God. And, and the Bible speaks of, of people becoming, um, be, becoming darkened in their minds. So where at one time they might have had more clarity, through a process, they, they become darker. Their minds become darkened. And Paul mentions this in the first chapter of, of Romans. He speaks about people who willfully reject the obvious signs of the reality of God. And he says that their, uh, their, their minds are darkened. And, and then he says this, professing to be wise, they become fools. And they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for that which is like human beings and uh, four-footed animals, various beasts and creeping things. Paul's making reference to uh, the, the different kinds of things that people have replaced God with as far as worshiping. Worshiping, uh, mostly today, what we would see is people worshiping themselves or worshiping the self. But that's a result of a darkened mind. Now, of course, there are people who would say, hey, you're crazy, man. We're living in the most enlightened time ever. We, you know, the lights are finally on. We're coming out from under the, the shroud of the darkness that religion and and, um, and uh, superstition and all that is placed on us. And now we're, we're really coming out into the light and we're really seeing things clearly. There's a, there's a bunch of people that think that this is a, a, an illuminated moment. I don't see it that way. I, I think it's getting darker and darker. And in this illuminated moment, I mean, think of just this one simple thing. If you're paying any attention to what's going on in the larger culture, which I'm sure you are, we're at a time when highly educated, uh, supposedly intelligent people, people who are in positions of, of power and authority in this country, when asked a very simple question that a toddler can answer, they can't answer it. Here's the question, what is a woman? What is a woman? Now, this enlightened age can no longer answer that question. So I think unless we wanna just go with the flow, we need to recognize, no, this is darkness. 
These are minds that have become darkened to where we can no longer even think rationally. We're not allowed to think rationally. We lived in the age of uh, science and empiricism. And everything was always, well, what does the science say? Now it's like, science doesn't matter. What do you say? How do you feel? What do you think? In your, your deepest heart of hearts, what, what is your perspective? That is what some people are saying is reality. So I think that we are in a time of deep darkness. Darkness is covering the earth and a gross darkness is covering the people. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light of the world today. He's the light of the world for the future. But you know, the truth of the matter is, Jesus has always been the light of the world. And this is a claim that Jesus is making, of course. And a claim can be challenged. A claim can be disputed. And as I pointed out when we were looking at another one of the claims of Jesus, um, I mean, anybody can claim something, but there has to be some... In order for us to take the claim seriously, there has to be some proof of it, right? There has to be some evidence to support the claim. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is there anything that can support that claim? Well, actually, that claim is supported by things all around us. All around us, but we somehow miss it. So let's think about things that we all assume to be true. And I'll take it a step further. Things that we take for granted. Things that we just think, well, these, this is just the way things are. And what I want to show you is that that really isn't the case. These are not what they are because this is just the way things are. These are the way they are for a reason. And the reason behind it all ultimately is the statement of Jesus here. I am the light of the world. So I'm going to give you a few references here. Uh, in his book, How Christianity Changed the World, historian Alvin J. Schmidt shows how the influence of the gospel on people and cultures produced an immeasurable amount of good, especially toward the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized in society. So that's, that's the, the gist of this particular book, How Christianity Changed the World. Each chapter expounds on some aspect of light the gospel has brought into an otherwise dark world. Now, we don't obviously have time to go into 
uh, this book in any deep sort of a way. But what I want to do is I want to just give you the chapter titles and you can draw from the titles of the chapters what the content of the chapter would be. And, and in that, what you're going to come to realize is that this is the way it is because of the gospel, because of Jesus. Okay, so here we go. Uh, number one, the sanctity of human life. Now, we all are, that's ringing in our ears at this present time, right? Because of the Roe versus Wade decision, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So we're back again in the public conversation talking about this whole issue of pro-life and pro-choice and all of this stuff. Well, did, did you know that back in the, the New Testament period, the Roman period, the same issues existed? There were abortions then, but more popularly, there was infanticide. Infanticide was, uh, was um, the kind of extreme stuff that we're hearing people talk about today. That a baby is birthed, but you don't want the baby, so you expose the baby to the elements and let it die. That was infanticide. That was uh, all throughout the ancient world, the Roman Empire. This is, this is what you did with your unwanted children. And it was the Christians, the influence of the gospel that changed that. That finally brought people to the place of saying, oh no, this is not good. This is not right. We shouldn't do this. That is an achievement of the gospel. Then here's another chapter. Christianity elevates sexual morality. So again, the ancient world, there, was, there were no rules. In the ancient world, men dominated for the most part. And if you were a man and if you saw a woman and you wanted to have sexual pleasure with her, you could pretty much do what you wanted. There were some laws here or there at times, but there were always loopholes. There were always ways around them. So again, it was the impact of the gospel that changed that. Um, here's another title. Women receive freedom and dignity. That the whole idea of equality and all of that, that, that really goes back to the influence of the gospel. I'm just going to go through these real quickly, the rest of them. Uh, charity and compassion, their Christian connection. Hospitals and health care, their Christian roots. Christianity's imprint on education. Labor and economic freedom dignified. Science, its Christian connections, liberty and justice for all. Slavery abolished, a Christian achievement. So each one of these chapters obviously dig deeply into um, these particular issues and show the, the influence and the effort on, um, on the part of many, many Christians to bring about societal change for these these harmful behaviors and practices that people just lived with uh, for the most part through all of history and for the most part in um, most civilizations. Now, that book that I'm just referring to here by Alvin Schmidt was, I think the copyright date on that is uh, 2001. So let's fast forward. 2019, award-winning British historian Tom Holland 
uh, he drills down deeper into this whole subject in a book entitled Dominion. And here's the subtitle, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Now, here's, now Alvin Schmidt is a Christian uh, professor, history professor. Tom Holland is not a Christian in the... He's not a Christian in the, the biblical sense of, yes, I've received Jesus, my sins are forgiven, I'm now following him. Tom is not that person yet, anyway. Um, there's a lot of influences in his life that hopefully he will come to that place, but, but he, he would identify now, he would identify as a Christian, but more just in a cultural sense, where previously he would identify probably more as um, an atheist or an agnostic. But listen to this quote from his book, Dominion. He says that my belief in God had faded over the course of my teenage years did not mean that I had ceased to be a Christian. For a millennium and more, the civilization into which I had been born was Christendom. Assumptions that I have grown up with about how a society should be properly organized and the principles that it should uphold were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of human nature, but very distinctively of that civilization's Christian past. So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that it has come to be hidden from view. It is the incomplete revolutions which are remembered. The fate of those which triumph is to be taken for granted. So, so the interesting thing about Tom Holland, I, I've followed him quite a bit. I know, I know people who know him. Um, here's a guy, he's a, his specialty is Gre the Greco-Roman period. So he's written several fantastic books on uh, the Caesars and... Um, Crossing the Rubicon and all of these great, great works. Um, so he's basically a, a guy who just has, has bought into the fact that the modern world is a result of the classical Greek period, uh, Western civilization, all of that stuff. But the, but the more he digs into that world, the more he realizes that, no, there's, there's not a connection. Because all of these things that we cherish and all these things that we hold as valuable and precious and the things that we think of as universal, these did not come from that. As a matter of fact, in his book, Dominion, which is a really big book, um, he says that it's not the Greeks and the Romans who are responsible for the good things that we know in Western civilization. You know what he says? He says, it's Jesus and Paul. Wow. Now you can imagine he's fallen out of popularity with uh, certain folks, but uh, he, he's just looking at it objectively from a historical standpoint. Glenn Scrivener. Glenn is, uh, he's, a, he's a believer, an apologist, minister of the gospel, uh, UK-based, originally from Australia, um, he's, he's a big fan of Tom Holland. Um, he wrote a book that just recently came out, and 
Remember, Tom Holland's book is called Dominion. He says about his book, he didn't title it this, he says, my book is Dominion for Dummies. And so, uh, <laughs> because Tom Holland's book is like 700 pages, Glenn's is probably 200. So, uh, but this is the title of Glenn's book. The air we breathe. The air we breathe. And so Glenn picks up on what Holland says about Christianity's influence being hidden in plain sight, so to speak. Here's what Glenn says. He writes, Goldfish might not know the chemical composition of H2O, but it's still central to their lives. In the same ways, I'm guessing that these concerns resonate with you. Equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. None of these values are self-evident, nor are they widespread among the civilizations of the world. So where did they come from? And how did they get to become the air we breathe? The one word answer is Christianity. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he says to his followers, you are the light of the world. And as we just trace the history back, these things and what, what Glenn says, I mean, isn't it true that we all just assume that, of course, equality is the right way to go? Yes, somebody should be compassionate. And consent, nobody should be able to just do what they want without you agreeing to it and enlightenment and freedom, we all agree. Even the most avid, progressive leftist is operating off of this system because they think lots of things are wrong. They think there's lots of injustices. They think there's all kinds of things that shouldn't be the way they are. Where did they get that idea? Well, they don't even realize it. They got it from the influence of Jesus. That's the point. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, history supports that the claim is valid. But then he goes on and he says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness. Now, the biblical picture is that the world is in darkness. And as I said, it's, it's a spiritual and it's, and it's a moral darkness. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying there is a way out of the darkness. How do we come out of the darkness? How do we come out of that place where our minds are darkened to the point that we can't even make sense of anything anymore? that we would become so irrational that we would support the idea that men can have babies. How, how, do, how do you get there? But more importantly, how do, you get, how do you get out of there? Because that's, there's nothing good's gonna come out of that. And in the long run, and we see that. We already see these numbers of people who 
have transitioned in the, you know, the transgender thing. These, these kids that were duped by their elders, by their teachers, by their parents in some cases to, to go ahead. And yes, you know, your gender is fluid. You're, you, you're a girl. You want to be a boy? No problem. Let's make that happen for you. And so they go through these crazy processes that medically screws them up majorly. And now there's a number of them who have themselves, despite the influence of the adults around them, they've come to their own conclusion, no, this is messed up. This is wrong. So now there's a group of people who are detransitioning. They're coming back to what they originally were. So that's the question. How do we get out of the, the madness once we're there? How do we get out of the darkness? Jesus said, follow me. I'm the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't remain in that darkness. But you will have the light of life. So darkness, John, even though the Bible in general talks about darkness, John, he juxtaposes light and darkness all throughout his gospel. And darkness, as far as John is concerned, is the spiritual and moral antithesis of who and what God is. When John's talking about darkness, that's what he's talking about, the spiritual and moral antithesis of what God is. And so John writes in, not in his gospel, but in his first letter, he writes that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, again, John's not the only uh, Bible writer who talks about darkness. We find references to darkness all throughout. And specifically, um, I want to look at the New Testament for a moment. But the New Testament tells us this about darkness. It tells us, it refers to a place. There is a place, outer darkness, where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus spoke about it as a, it's a, it's a place of judgment. Um, but also, darkness, according to the New Testament, is a personal power. So darkness, there's... There's a personal element to it. There are the principalities. Paul speaks of them in Ephesians chapter 6. There are the principalities and powers, the rulers of this present darkness. The rulers of this present darkness. So there's a personal aspect to darkness. John tells us earlier in his gospel that people love darkness. People love it. We're told about deeds of darkness. Romans 13, let us cast off the deeds of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. We're also told that darkness can be in us. And Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, oh, how great is that darkness. 
Now, people today, they say, oh, we're enlightened. No, no, we have, we have now been enlightened. We've come out of the superstition of God and all of that. Now, we're enlightened. They, Jesus says, if the light that is in you is darkness. So the light they're boasting about is actually darkness. Oh, how great is that darkness. And then Paul actually would say that um, he speaks to the, I think it's the uh, Colossians maybe, uh, Ephesians or Colossians. He says, he says, and you were at that time darkness. You were darkness. So darkness is, is being in this state. It's being under the control of a power. It is acting out things in certain ways. But Jesus says, those who follow me will not walk in the darkness. When Jesus sent the Apostle Paul on his mission after he confronted him on the road to Damascus, he, and Paul's, Paul's recounting the story. Jesus says, I am sending you to the Gentiles to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. So darkness means the power of Satan. Light brings you under the power of God. Now, many in this room, like me, you know of a moment in time when you crossed the threshold from darkness to light. Oh, I, I know everything about the darkness being in you. It was in me. I know everything about the darkness controlling me and having power over me. I know it. I lived it. I, I read these words and I understand. Now, this, is, this was dark. I remember times and places where the darkness was so thick you could feel it. But I didn't have a name for it. I didn't even know what it was, but I knew it wasn't good. But I remember a moment in time when I crossed out of the darkness into light. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's offering. Now, one more thing about darkness just to drive the point home. You know, I mean, when you're, when you're in darkness, and, and let's talk here about like real darkness, not a darkness where you're, you finally adjust and you're okay, I can navigate this. But have you ever been in a place where it's like, no, the darkness is too thick. And, and I'm talking about a physical situation where you're just in like a pitch black thing. So I was trying to think of where have I been where it's pitch black? Well, in Jerusalem, there is um, what is known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. And it's, it's a tunnel that King Hezekiah had carved through the side of the mountain, through a rock. And it takes about 15, 20, eh, maybe 20 minutes or so to, to get through this tunnel. And you 
I mean, you could probably make it without a light because you can't go anywhere. It's, it's, it, the path is so narrow. You just stick to both sides and keep going forward. You could, you could probably make it to the other side because there's nothing else you can do. But just for fun, so we've gone in there and you take a flashlight with you. But just for fun, we've decided, let's turn off the lights and, and let's see how much we can see. <laughs> and when you turn off the lights, you cannot see the person three inches in front of you. That's how dark it is. So think about life in darkness. What, what happens to those who, who try to live, advance, move forward, do anything in darkness? You can't go anywhere. I, I always think of the words of Jesus when he said um, about the, the false religious leaders, he said they are the blind leading the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall in a pit. And, and I think of the, the darkness that's on the hearts and minds of, of people today, and yet they're, they want to lead. Where are they going to lead you to? They're going to lead you into a pit because they don't know where they're going. But Jesus says that not only is he the light of the world and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, he says, but they will have the light of life. So Jesus gives us, he brings us out of the darkness and then he gives us the light of life. What does that mean, the light of life? It means the light that leads to life. The light that brings life. The idea here is twofold. It's one of understanding. Jesus gives us light that leads to life. He gives us understanding on what reality is. That's a good place to start. If you're going to succeed in life, knowing what reality is, is a great place to start. We got a generation of people that have checked out of reality. They've checked out. Reality's looking them right in the face and they, no, it's, we, we don't believe it. We, I don't feel it. I don't believe it. So Jesus is going to tell us what reality is and he's going to actually show us the way the light, the understanding, the wisdom that leads to life. But it's not just understanding. You know, light is power. Light is power. And I, I think of, I mean, the, the most obvious way to maybe illustrate that today is to think of a laser beam. What is, what is a laser beam? It's light. It's concentrated light. Concentrated and directed light that produces unimaginable power. I mean, scientists say that certain laser beams have the power to 
destroy a planet. That's how powerful light is. Now, if that is the case, how much more, when we think of these, these terms, how much more, when we're talking about light, and we're talking about Jesus, who says he's the light of the world, we're talking about the one who created light. Remember the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. Wow. And in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and all things were made by him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So the God who said, let there be light, is the person right here who says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who follow me, that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. He's inviting us. He's inviting all people. You know, it's like Jesus comes down into the darkness and says, follow me. I'm going to take you out of this. That's what he did. And that's what he still does. He calls us to follow him. And the idea of following is simply one going in the same way. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Go in the same way as Jesus. Now, as we've seen, Christianity has changed the world for the good. And, you know, people today, no, 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 it didn't. It brought all kinds of oppression and horrible things. And we know they're horrible, and we know that people shouldn't act that way. How do we know that? Oh, from Christianity. Oh, okay, forget that. That's that's the way it works today. But, no, the truth is that Christianity has changed the world for good. But, let me clarify, actually, more accurately, Jesus has changed the world by changing his followers and making them more like him. And through the goodness of him flowing through them, that's how the world has been changed. Let's make sure we don't forget that. Because if you say Christianity changed the world for good, people are going to bring up a hundred horrible things that Christianity has done, the church has done. And you know what? They're going to be right on probably 90 of them. So how do we navigate that? How do we get around that? we got to go back beyond the church to Jesus himself. And the good that has come through Christians has come because they have become Christians. And Jesus has done a work in them that resulted in, in them working for change that has brought about good. Now, follow me. One going in the same way. We're going in the same way as Jesus. What way are we talking about? The way of loving God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the way of Jesus. Jesus said that's the number one commandment. 
The second commandment, he said, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And going in the way of Jesus is to be people who are loving God first and loving neighbor. And, of course, the way of Jesus is the way of sacrifice. The way of the cross. Dying to my will and living for God's will. So, if you were to take that first book I mentioned, How Christianity Changed the World, and you were to read through those chapters, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find a, a, a horrible situation, and you're going to find the resolution to it and a good outcome. But in the middle, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find people who loved God, loved their neighbor, and denied themselves. That's how you went from the darkness to the light. That's how it happens. And that's how it always happens. And so if we're following Jesus, that's what we are doing. We will truly live for God's glory and it will lead to personal blessing because, you know, when you live for God, there's just an automatic blessing in it. Might not mean that you become a millionaire, might not mean that you never have a problem, but what it does mean is that you have something that nobody else has. You have peace in your soul and you have rest in your mind because you know the truth about reality, that God is in charge of everything. So it's gonna to lead to personal blessing and the good of others. And the good of others. That's what happens when people follow Jesus. Darkness is dispelled and light bursts through. So Jesus is inviting. Still today, he's inviting people. Come out of the darkness. Come into my light. You don't have to walk in that anymore. You don't have to live in that. You don't have to be oppressed and controlled and dominated by that. You can be set free from that. He calls us uh, to come and follow him, the light of the world. And as we've already said, the world is a dark place. It's getting darker. It's always been dark. There, there have been times when it seemed like it was so dark that the lights were just about to go out. And then something would happen. And the, the light of the Lord would break through and bring understanding and bring empowerment and things would change. You know, I, I'm not giving up hope that that, that that still might happen. Because let's just remember this. And this is from John chapter 1. We've already been there. But let me just remind you of this. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And even today in this dark season, this dark hour that we're living in, man, there's little, there's little um, sparks of light all over the place. The darkness hasn't put it out. Hasn't overcome it. The, the, 
there's, there's still those sparks of light. And at any time, those sparks of light could burst into a blazing ball of light. And that's what we hold out hope for. But we know in the end, ultimately, that Jesus will show himself as the light of the world. And the Bible tells us at the very end, in the new heaven and the new earth, guess what? And there is no sun there. There's no light holder there. There's no need for the Lord God and the Lamb are the light of it. So as we conclude this morning, once again, we have here up in front and sides and back and outside, we have the bread and the cup. And Jesus, I want to I close us with this. Jesus is inviting us, follow me. Now, I'm following Jesus, and I know many of you are following Jesus too. But you know, I want to ask myself this question. Am I going in the way that you're going, Lord? Am, am I following you like you want me to follow you? You know, it's possible to, to say we're following somebody, but we've fallen so far behind, we're not even sure where they're at. Yeah, I'm following, I, I'm not sure where he is. I'm, I'm following no, following Jesus means we're following him closely. And I'm following Jesus, but I want to ask myself this question. Am I following him closely enough? Am I following him as closely as he's called me to follow him? And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we have an opportunity to ask that question. And if we find that we're lagging behind, if we're not going in the same way that Jesus is going, we can we can make the adjustment. He will help us to do it. But you know, maybe today you're, you're somebody that's, that's with us or maybe you're you know, watching online or listening on radio or something and, and you're a person who says, man, I'm in darkness. I'm living in darkness. I'm, I'm in the dark. How do I get out of this dark place? Call upon Jesus. Turn to him. Begin to follow him. And if you're with us today, you can actually take this bread and cup. This bread and cup reminds us of the great love of God, what Jesus did, the sacrifice that he made to change the world. And he invites us to partake of that. And you can do that and you can say, Lord, I've been in darkness. Jesus, pull me out and he will. By you asking that's how he does it. You have to ask him. He won't do it without your permission, but if you ask him, he will. And so, may we all respond today accordingly. Lord, we pray that we might respond accordingly and appropriately to the truth that you are the light of the world. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And oh, how we thank you, Lord, that the, light has, uh, the darkness has not overcome the light, nor ever will overcome the light. And so may we walk in the light today as you are in the light, following you 
going in the way that you are going. We pray. Amen.